Every now and then, somebody will ask me, how did I get to where I am? What were some of the shaping influences in my life, specifically my religious background? What do you believe, Rick? Have you always believed that? How do you come to believe what you believe now versus what you believed then? I enjoy those questions, don't mind them at all. And I do want to be honest and and open about my life as much as I can and should appropriately, always using discretion. Sometimes I find those Lines hard to find, and I typically over communicate. But I do want folks to know, and 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 if they have inquiring minds, and if it helps them and serves them, then then I want to do that. But one of the common questions that I have received is about my early religious shaping influences. My early shaping religious influences uh, is from the Independent Baptist movement, or what you would understand as fundamentalism. I come from a fundamentalist background, and I want to talk about that in this podcast. I want to share with you, I'm going to do several things in this podcast. I want to give you a brief history of fundamentalism and where it came from, and it will be brief. I want to talk about why I got into it and why I came out of it. And then I want to talk about the adverse or the negative effect of fundamentalism on a person's soul. And I'm speaking as one who was a part of it, not a part of it. I've seen the effect of it. But more than that, I live in the southern part of the United States, Greenville, South Carolina specifically. We we call this area the Bible Belt. Some people say Greenville is the buckle on the Bible Belt. And so I have spent my virtually my entire adult life, part of fundamentalism, helping those come out of fundamentalism, and everything that is involved in that complicatedness. And so I do think that I have a perspective here that is valid, and I want to share that with you because we get those emails regularly with people who are struggling with legalistic cultures, whether it's independent Baptist or some other legalistic culture, but it is a thing that we all struggle with. I mean, if you strip all this away and just get down to the raw bones of our Adamic natures, we're legalists at heart. I mean, that was the problem with with Adam post-Genesis 3-6, doing things legalistically. So that's who we are, and that's why a legalistic culture would resonate with us. But when you become part of legalism, and it begins to fall apart on you, or it doesn't fit well, well, then you really need to self-assess, and you need to address why you are a part of it, what is wrong with it, what do I need to do, and that's what I did. And so my my journey from the time that God regenerated me in 1984 to today, I went into the fundamentalist movement, my life fell apart, it, they were not able to help me because that's not something that they they do well. I began to address my, my Christian beliefs, and I came out of fundamentalism. I've spent my adult life helping those that are coming out as well. And so I want to talk about all of those things in this podcast. And if you want to read what I'm sharing with you, please jump on our website, rickthomas.net. Look for this title, The Negative Effect of Fundamentalism on the Soul. And you can read Everything that I'm sharing, there's over 2,200 words, and you're welcome to share this article and this podcast with others if you believe it may help them. Fundamentalism is one slice of Christian evangelicalism. I like to say tongue-in-cheek, Christians are good wood. We split easily. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Diversity is critical in our world today because everybody's not the same. And so we need to communicate the gospel according to the cultures and the individuals that we're talking to. We never change the gospel 
That is never altered in any way. But our methodology and our preferences, they can be all over the map. And so when I say we split easily, I, I do say that tongue-in-cheek, and, and I I don't necessarily see that as a problem. Of course, splitting can be, but that's not how I think about it in this context. Fundamentalists typically hold to strict sub-biblical ascetic practices. And when I say sub-biblical, I'm distinguishing that between unbiblical because the things that they believe aren't unbiblical. They're just preferences. They're sub-biblical preferences many times that, that I don't embrace, but I don't have a problem with them doing it, though I do think it can be problematic, as I will address in this podcast. And they do love Jesus, and they are passionate about following him, and I do want you to hear that, but many of them embrace legalistic preferences, and the negative effect of this kind of teaching, not only can it be immediate to your own soul, to your own family, but it is also generational. Fundamentalism is not really an exportable religion. Legalism is not an exportable religion. It breaks down, and and the next generation, you'll see a lot of fallout from, from this kind of teaching. After the Lord regenerated me in 1984, I became part of the Christian fundamentalist movement, specifically the independent Baptists. In my hometown, most of the church-going folks They were Baptists. I didn't know anything about the Bible, and so I just did what everybody else did, and there are two stripes of Baptists where I come from. You're either an independent Baptist or a Southern Baptist, and it didn't matter to me. And so what I did is I visited Baptist churches, and I eventually joined an independent fundamental Baptist church. And the church that I joined was passionate about the gospel, And that was the primary reason I became an independent Baptist. That resonated with me. My thinking was that if if God was in you, and if the Lord has saved you from hell, then he was worth our enthusiasm. And because I didn't know anything about the Bible, meaning I didn't even know John 3.16 when God regenerated me, my due diligence for joining a church, it was external, observation exclusively, And so the people at the Independent Baptist, they weren't falling asleep at the church meeting. They were enthusiastic about it, and I liked that. Now, I'm not a part of this movement any longer, but I do want you to know I have a lot of respect and a lot of dear friends who are fundamental Baptists. Some of my fondest memories came from my time with this group of Christians, and I cannot wait for heaven when I will worship with these precious brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you a brief history of of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, it refers to a group of people who believe that the church was drifting into liberalism. This is around the turn of the century. And by the way, their assessment was accurate. The, The world was going wild at the turn of the century. And fundamentalists, they began to align themselves, or maybe they came out of, but however that happened, they aligned themselves with such men as John Gresham Machen, Charles Hodge, and other people who associated with Princeton Seminary. But then Princeton Seminary began to slip into heresy, and so there was a growing desire among these good men to to separate. Again, this period now, we're talking about uh, at the turn of the 20th century, shortly thereafter. And so Machen, 
Hodge, Cornelius Van Til. Uh, he was many consider the father of uh, presuppositional apologetics. B.B. Warfield, many consider the the last great um, uh, president of Princeton Seminary. The fundamentalists. They all wanted to reclarify historic Christianity with what they have always believed, and then codify those things and live by this reclarified teaching. Westminster Seminary came about at this time. It, what fundamentalist and fundamentalism means? Those who here adhere to the fundamentals of the faith, and so this realignment it was wise. It was necessary for them to redefine themselves. We should do. We should do that. You and I. We should always reclarify, redefine, refocus, sharpen our tools that way. Whether it's our, our lives, our ministries, our institutions, so that we can maintain focus, purpose, direction, reminding ourselves of who we supposed to be and and what we believe. It brings clarity to who we are. It's also a gift to the next generation. And so in the 1920s, the fundamentalists, in addition to this reclarification, they also began to take up cultural causes like prohibition as they preached against the use and the abuse of alcohol, which was pandemic in America. Our culture was accelerating their hedonistic passions well beyond anything that previous generations knew. What used to be secret and taboo what used to be hidden was now explored, and it was praised in the public square. There was less shame about sin, and the lines between right and wrong were blurred, and someone needed to redraw them. The conservative Christian felt his world crumbling. Who was going to stand in the gap? Who was going to declare what was right and wrong? And so the fundamentalists, along with Warfield and Van Til and Hodge and Machen and Westminster East, well, they not only began to reclarify the fundamentals of the faith, but they also began to address the hedonism that was going on in our culture. And so during the 40s and the, 50, the 1940s and the 1950s, fundamentalism, the fundamentalists began to add sub-biblical legalistic preferences to the fundamentals of the faith. And this is where they began to separate from the Presbyterians, uh, from Machen, Hodge, Warfield, uh, Van Til, etc. They didn't drift from the fundamentals. And I do want you to hear that. Your fundamental Baptists today, they believe in the fundamentals of the faith. They really do. But what they begin to do is they begin to place a burden on those fundamentals by teaching how their followers should behave in our world externally speaking. Their point of emphasis began to change. You see, the culture was spiraling out of control, and the fundamentalists wanted to present something that was different. With the advent of TV, movies, rock and roll, they felt as though they were losing ground, and they were. It is as though teaching the fundamentals of the faith were assumed while the behaviors were not. And so they taught more about how to behave. And that, be, that is one of the hallmarks of a fundamentalist. They teach behaviorism or legalism or preferences. 
And of course, there's an inherent problem with this kind of teaching because you can't teach people how to live externally because it doesn't map from culture to culture or generation to generation because we're all different. The gospel is perfect for every culture, every individual, every generation. It doesn't change, doesn't deviate. But behaviorism, externalism, preferences and legalism, that's problematic. For example, give you some common sense illustrations. Fundamentalists do not believe that a woman should wear pants. They derive that teaching, unfortunately, from Deuteronomy 22.5. But then you have women in colder climates, and that's not the same as a woman in a hotter environment. And so the fundamentalists that teach that a woman should wear pants is unrealistic, it's unkind for women that, who are living in these colder climates. And then other fundamentalists would ban drums, a musical instrument, because they're reacting to rock and roll, of course. And so they would ban drums. They would say it's of the devil. But in Africa, for example, it is a significant way for our brothers and sisters to worship our Savior. And so much like the Pharisees, making preferences normative unhooks you from sound Bible teaching. In time, their behaviorism, it began to affect their doctrine. And so instead of deriving their behaviors from the Bible, your behaviors flow out of the Bible, what they began to do is they adopted the behavior or certain practices and then reinterpreted the Bible to support the externalism. And then they elevated the externalism to the level of a conviction. There are many illustrations of this altered hermeneutic, the science of Bible interpretation. I mentioned pants on women, drums in church. There's also the KJV only supporters, King James only, the King James Version Bible only, the only English Bible that you could ever read. There's no alcohol at all, which is another teaching and among many fundamentalists. There were bands on dancing, playing cards, secular music. The list is long. And it varies depending on the individual, the family, the church, the denomination, and the movement. You can see how problematic this is. The Pharisees, as we see, understand that the New Testament, they held firmly, and I use the Pharisees as, as an illustration. Again, I want to be careful here. Pharisees were not Christians. And I'm not saying that about fundamentalists. Again, they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there's a mirror here with the Pharisees who held firmly to the laws of the Old Testament, and they were afraid they would offend those teachings. And so what the Pharisees did, they guarded against this fear by creating a hedge around the teaching. These barriers were protective hurdles around the law. And so it's a rule that keeps you from breaking the law, a hedge. Of course, in time... Those hedges became the new law. Let me illustrate. God brings us out of darkness, right? First Peter 2 tells us that. And we don't have anything to do with uncleanness. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 6 tells us that. And so we are, we are not to adopt pagan practices. That's the law. That's the principle. That's the rule. That's the idea. And thus... The fundamentalists would not hang out with pagans 
because you may become like them. And so rather than just not embracing the world's methods, that's the principle, don't be like them, and that is a good idea, by the way, don't be like the pagans, the fundamentalists will separate from those who do those things. That's the hedge. And so you're not only doing the practice, but you're separating from those who do the practice, the hedge. This unbiblical doctrine of separation is what they call it. It not only keeps you from evil practices, but it prevents you from associating with anyone who does those things. Now, contrarywise, Jesus intentionally went beyond those unbiblical barriers. He wanted to help those who were sick, broken, depraved, and vile. Because you can't codify how all Christians from all cultures for all time should live behaviorally, you end up with a lot of bad habits. Each person, family, group, church, denomination, they, ha- they have their list of, of do's and don'ts. This kind of culture invariably leads to problems. I want to, here, here are a few that are typical in fundamentalist cultures, some of the problems that you encounter within this type of culture. Now, I want you to understand that we're all susceptible to these things, but this is what I experience within fundamentalism, and as I have dealt with hundreds upon hundreds of people that are in that culture or have come out of that culture, here's a short list, but it's non-exhaustive, of some of the problems that fundamentalists because of their behavioral acceptance of preferences and the mandating of those that it causes. One, uncharitable judging. It's a normal Adamic response to look at another person and compare yourself with them. As Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, not that we dare to classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and, com- and, commit- and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. It is normal for all of us to uncharitably judge others, but fundamentalism is a perfect setup for unkind and unwarranted comparisons. Number two, there are self-righteous standards. Because the rules come from an altered human uh, hermeneutic, there's no end to the making of them. I mean, once you alter your way of interpreting the Bible, you can make up endless rules. And after you throw in the temptation to compare yourself with other people, you begin to create your own form of righteousness. And so now you have, it's a list culture. Everybody has their own list that they live by. And so fundamentalism is is a culture that is rife with uncharitable judging self-righteous standards. Number three, endless list, as I mentioned. And so everyone has a list of how they live their lives. It's not a pneumatic life led by the Holy Spirit and guided by God's Word. Much like the Pharisees of old, everyone is doing what is right in their eyes. And so number three, you have endless list. Number four, authoritarianism. Those in charge want to, and I'm going to put this in quotation marks, they want to care for their sheep. So they make sure that everyone knows how to live. 
and I'm talking, that's a nice way of saying authoritarianism. It becomes a strict code of conduct that creates a cult-like atmosphere. Every, everyone begins to look, act, and react the same. Biblical diversity is gone. Authoritarianism. Number five, there is a fear of breaking the rules. Once you learn the rules, you conform to them. Only a few daring, or maybe you say, maybe I say a few uncaring. It could be daring or uncaring, but only a few daring or uncaring souls will break off from the group. Typically, when they do that, they react with sinful anger, and they leap into what I call the grace mistake, where obedience does not matter at all. They jump from the ditch of legalism to the ditch of, of grace, and this is not really grace at all. You could say they jump from the ditch of legalism to the ditch of licentiousness because they're angry with the culture that they just came from. Eventually, hopefully, they'll come back a little bit to a gospel-centered kind of life. But initially, in this kind of culture, there is a fear of breaking the rules. And so there's uncharitable judging, self-righteous standards, endless lists, authoritarianism, fear of breaking the rules, number six, deception. For those who stay in this culture, there is a strong temptation to lie about what is happening with them. The struggling soul does not want others to know what is wrong with them. They fear judgment, condemnation, or their friends choosing to separate from them. You remember the hedge around the rule? Well, not only do you separate from the problem, but you separate from the person who is committing the problem. And so there's a lot of deception. Who would want to be honest in that kind of culture if you're going to be condemned and alienated? Number seven, hard consciences. With no plan and no path to change, their sin remains and their consciences harden. From that point, they, they live a life of justifications, rationalizations, blaming, or alleviating some secret sin to alleviate their unruly consciences. And so number seven, hard consciences. Number eight, poor sanctification practices. The solution to overcome their problems is nearly always a list of practices. Thus, they have poor sanctification practices. You double down on doing better. It would be exceptional for a fundamentalist to, to have a sound theology of the heart and the competency to help a person ov overcome in-depth soul problems. They're not good at sanctification. And so some of the inherent problems within a legalistic culture, one, uncharitable judging, two, self-righteous standards, three, endless list, four, authoritarianism, five, fear of breaking the rules, thus, number six, deception, thus, number seven, hard consciences, eight, poor sanctification practices, number nine, disassociation, for example, the fundamentalist college student who is struggling with porn believes he has no option but to hide his sin. If he lets the authorities know about his problem, they will dismiss him. He'll lose his college education. He'll have to face his family and friends back home. And there is little hope for the restorative care of Jesus. This illustration demonstrates the law. The law says, don't do porn, obviously. Don't do porn. But the hedge about the law, you separate or dismiss anyone who breaks the law. 
disassociation, number nine. And then finally, number 10, you exchange the truth for lies. Many who leave fundamentalist structures, they find it hard to separate the truth from lies because of the strong shaping influences of that culture. It takes about five years of of in-depth discipleship care to help a person enjoy the freedom that is found in Christ. The title of this podcast is The Negative Effect of Fundamentalism on the Soul. I have many dear brothers that are part of this and sisters that are who are part of this culture, and I'm very thankful for them, and I love them dearly, but there is no question that legalism is a problem, and I've just given you seven, uh, 10 negative effects of being a part of a legalistic culture in my background, it was an independent Baptist culture. By erecting a hedge around a hedge that is around the rule, you'll end up with several generations of Christ followers who don't know their Bibles well. Scripture gets lost in the list, the regulations, the standards, and the insufferable pressure to behave. And after years of law morphing, You become less like Jesus and more like an odd cultic group that does not know how to live in and engage the culture the way Jesus did. And I suppose for some of you who are listening to this, it would be a temptation for some kind of harsh reaction against our fundamentalist brothers and sisters. That reaction would be sinful. My fundamentalist friends, again, are some of the most sincere people of the Christian faith. The ones that I know love Jesus. But to be honest, they mirror more closely the Jewish person. In 1 Corinthians 8, you remember the Jewish person who became a Christian. Now he's a convert, and and he was afraid to eat meat. He was so convinced by bad teaching, legalistic teaching, that his conscience condemned him if he ate meat that was sacrificed to idols. Well, I was that person. That's why I don't want you to react harshly or unkindly to the fundamentalists, because I was that Jewish convert who believed it was a a sin to eat meat. That was my training. It is a matter of conscience. It took me a long time before I could get to the place of not wearing a suit to a church meeting, because that was a sub-biblical law. And so dismissing or mocking or reacting in anger with a fundamentalist image bearer, brother or sister in Christ, it is self-righteous unkindness. Don't do that. Would you have that kind of attitude toward the Jewish convert who believed that eating meat was a sin? Don't be that person. Paul said that that is arrogant. Because love builds up, but your knowledge puffs up. And though you know better than the fundamentalist or the the Jewish who became a Christian, the Jew who became a Christian convert, though you know better, you want to be kind. At the end of the day, these believers have much passion for God, high affection for the Bible, and a genuine desire for others to know the Lord. But many times, it's not so much about their love for God as it is about their consciences wrapped in rules that the Bible does not require. 
I was wrapped by those un and sub biblical preferences. Sadly, these behavioral standards are confusing and perplexing to our culture, and they create unnecessary inhibitors in communicating the gospel to those who need it most. But to respond poorly to them is like a freed slave being condescending toward his brothers and sisters who are still in bondage. If your first reaction is not love, pity, sympathy, and prayer for and a desire to help them, please address your pharisaical pride. It is rare for a fundamentalist to see how they are stuck. If they are aware, many of them would not have the courage to do anything about it. The most common way that a person comes out of fundamentalism is after their life falls apart. Rather than leaving the movement on their own, which is the wise and humble thing to do, it is as though God has to do an extraction, and many times that extraction comes at a cost. Often the Lord in his mercy will let things fall apart, which is your clue to address the authenticity and the accuracy of your Christian beliefs. Because we can be so proud, it is hard to evaluate what we believe and and practice those things with humility and transparency and, and honesty. We hold on until it falls apart. And that was my story that I look back on now and see that as the kindness of God. He allowed my life to blow up so that I could reassess what I believe and why I believe what I believe. And it was hard coming out. But I do thank God that he loved me enough to deliver me from that dangerous Christian religion. The title of the podcast is The Negative Effect of Fundamentalism on the Soul. I have several questions at the end of this podcast, the call to action part. You're welcome to read them if you wish. Thank you for listening. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.